We're going to be in the book of Esther, so I invite you to head that way. As we look at what the Lord has for us in the book of Esther, it's it's kind of a cool, I don't know, it's a cool study. I'm going to give you a few reasons why. Hopefully we'll we'll catch it as we kind of go through. You ever felt like as you go through life, uh, going through the things that we go through, the things that happen to us, that, uh, I don't know, God's not there? He's not listening. He don't hear me. Where's he at and all this stuff that's going on and all these things that are happening? Look, um, gosh, uh, in the book of Esther, you're dealing with uh, a woman whose parents have both died. Um, her uncle took her to raise her. So she got nobody. She's a pretty girl. And um, that ends up kind of being a a bad thing for her in the middle of a Persian kingdom. So she's got that going, kind of going against her. And as she's dealing with all of these things, we come to this book and we open it up and we don't find God's name in the whole thing. One of two books in the Bible, the name of God does not appear. But if we're honest, we've all felt that way. We've all felt like, where's God in all of my troubles and all of my problems? They're living in a, a conquered people. They were conquered by the Babylonians. Everybody remembers, right? We went through that with the history. And after they were conquered by the Babylonians, the Persians conquered the Babylonians. So in the midst of their time there in Babylon, they get conquered again. Kind of interesting though, some of the side notes that take place during that time. 150 years before a man named Cyrus was born, Isaiah named him and said he was going to let God's people begin to go back into Israel. uh, um, Tradition tells us, we don't find it in the Bible, tradition tells us that the man who went out to meet Cyrus handed him a scroll of Isaiah and showed him his name. Oh, that man in tradition has a name too. Daniel. You heard of him, right? Daniel, who served Nebuchadnezzar, who served Cyrus, who served Darius, the next king of Persia. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? That happens with, with Darius or Darius. He had a son, Darius. The, the, Darius tries to conquer Greece. They've got most of the known world, but they, they haven't conquered Greece. And Darius tries it. He's defeated in 490 B.C. on Marathon by, by the Greeks. The Greeks win the battle of Marathon. And Darius goes home. And Darius is going to die within a few years. He's never going to conquer the Greeks. And so we, when we come to that, that place, his son, the next king in line, his name's Xerxes. Xerxes is the king we read about in the book of Esther. He's the... He's the, the fourth, the, the mighty king that Daniel talks about in Daniel chapter 11. In fact, if you guys want to flip over there, we're going to get there shortly anyways. How many glasses do I need? One on my head, one on my face. Daniel chapter 11. Just go to Daniel chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. Daniel is, is uh, wanting to encourage uh, Darius the Mede, who is the father of Xerxes. It says, also in the first year of Darius Amid, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. And the fourth, he'll be much richer. Richer than them all, and by his strength and through his riches, he will stir up all against the realm of Greece. Xerxes has golden couches. In fact, One of his tents, when he goes to battle, you guys have heard of his battles. You might not know it, but you've heard of his battles in in Greece. We'll talk about them in a little while. But when he surrenders some ground and they get his tent, they have golden couches in it. And the Greeks wonder to themselves, why does someone with so much gold, he makes golden couches to go with him to battle, want to conquer us? We don't have anything. Well... Several reasons, one of those being God said he would. God said he's going to start 
trouble with Greece. And this is the beginning of the end for the Medes and the Persians. There's another king, Artaxerxes is coming, and, and there's the little while, but what happens is Xerxes stirs up the hornet's nest. This is the Xerxes that we're going to read about. His name in, in Esther is Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is a Hebrew equivalent of a name I won't even begin to try to pronounce, which is the Persian name. Xerxes is the Greek name. All dealing with the, the same fellow. He's going to reign from 485 to 465 B.C. Let's take a look. Esther chapter 1 says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. The first kingdom it was ever spoken of that the sun never set on the kingdom was the Persians. Later on, the British said it about their kingdom, but it had been said by Herodotus, the, the Greek historian, about Persians thousands of years before, you know. So, so the Persians have this humongous kingdom. In verse 2 it says, And in those days when King you know what I'm saying, Ahasuerus had on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and the servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. And when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. So we have a long period of party going on in the beginning of the book of Esther. Now the book of Esther is always read during a period of time called a Purim. It's a, it's a one day feast or festival where they remember this period of time that we're going to read about. And so I want you to understand who the king is, Xerxes. He's uh, got all this gold, all this silver. He spends 180 days throwing a party to show it to all these people, all the things that he has. But it told us there in verse 2, or in verse 3, that he brought all his officials together. There's more than just a feast going on. He is right now in verse 3 planning his Grecian campaign. He's headed to Greece. He's going to have a rough day in 480 BC. He's going to be in a place called Thermopylae. Ever heard of that? Where he's going to run into 300 Spartans and 5,000 other Greeks who are going to all die, but they're going to hold him there long enough for the people in Athens to escape Athens so that when Xerxes arrives at Athens, nobody's there. He's so mad, he wants vengeance on the Athenians for what they did to his dad that he burns Athens to the ground and then he turns around and comes home. He's planning this battle in, in verse 3. He's got all his officials together. It says he shows them all these riches. In verse 5 says, And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So first he has his planning, right? And he plans the Grecian uh, uh, war that's going to take place shortly. And then he throws another party and he invites a lot of other people to come to this party because now he's excited about, he's got plans to go get revenge against the Greeks. It says, and there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods, marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, while or with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, uh, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. So the party, typically at that time in the Eastern culture, you couldn't drink more than the king. So if the king drank, you could drink. But if the king wasn't drinking, you didn't drink. But the king at this party, he said, hey, drink whatever you want, take what you want. It's, it's all in abundance. They're having a fine time together. 
They're, they're drinking in part in verse 9 tells us there was a third feast going on at the same time. It says, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now on the seventh day, so there's seven days of this partying going on, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zathar, and Karka, seven eunuchs, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. So after seven days of drunkenness, now a lot of times, I don't know why it happens, maybe a lot of people read the book of Esther and, and they don't want to actually read what's going on. So um got to read what's actually going on. So they're wasted. Seven days of drinking. The king gets this crazy idea that he's going to go parade his wife, the queen, Vashti, in her beauty, and that's all to come before the drunken courts of all these men and all these officials and all these people gathered in that place. And uh, she is having her own feast with the women, which are probably not being as dumb as the guys. So the guys are all wasted, and he wants her to come and parade herself around to be that object of beauty for her husband. There was, didn't think much of women in those days, by the way. So, this was a man over a woman telling her what to do, a husband over his wife telling her what to do, and if that's not enough, a king telling his subject, Come, I want to show you off to all these guys who are around here. But it says in verse 12, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, brought by his eunuchs, therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Queen Vashti said no. I don't think Queen Vashti is wrong. I think what the king wants to do is demeaning. What he wants to have her do is demeaning. But in those days, that was a big problem, right? And what's that whole problem brought about by? They're all drunk. They're all drinking. Anytime I get a chance to say something about drinking, I'll be happy to do so. You want to know whether or not Drinking is condemned in the Bible. Being drunk is condemned a lot in the Bible. Drinking, however, through the Old Testament, the priests weren't to drink in service. The Levites weren't to drink in service. Whenever they were serving the Lord, no drinking, no wine, no strong drink of any kind. But it's funny, everybody wants to point to Jesus. You know, Jesus drank, he even made wine at a wedding. But nobody ever wants to quote Luke 22.18. Luke 22.18, do you remember what Jesus said? He served the Last Supper. You guys with me? And He said, this is my body broken for you, remember? And then He said, this cup, the wine of this cup, is my blood shed for you? And then Jesus said, I'm never going to drink of this cup again until I have it with you in my Father's kingdom. So you want to follow Jesus, he's not drinking anymore. And how many times is drink the cause of problems? Famous last words. Oh, it's not a problem for me. Well, that's clue. It's a problem for you. If that's the first thing to fly into your mind. That was a problem for King Ahasuerus, most powerful man in the world at the time. He wants to belittle his wife, make her just an object, you know, which probably was all she ever was. To him anyways. But, in light of all that, and besides all of those things, God was working. The Jews are living in a conquered kingdom. You have a, a little girl we're going to be introduced to in a, in a little while. Not little, but a young woman who's, who's got nobody, no parents. Probably doesn't think God's watching out for her. There's probably a lot of people during this time who are thinking, you know, I don't know if God's, if God's paying attention to what's happening around here. This, this is crazy, the things that are going on. And you're never going to hear His name in this book. But you're going to see His fingerprints everywhere. 
You're going to see his fingerprints all over it. It says in verse 13, Then the king said to the wise man who understood the times, uh, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him, being Karshina, Shethar, Admantha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence, and who ranked highest in the kingdom. So his seven closest princes. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the command of the king. King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And Memucan answered before the king and the princes. Now, ladies, this is going to sound just like a bunch of guys. Listen. Queen Vashti was not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. And, and when they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she didn't come. And this very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. All the women are going to stop listening to what we say. Because Queen Vashti... Look, let me, let me just say this, because I, maybe you guys don't realize this. People were the same back then, they are now. They didn't listen no better than they listen now. They had the same arguments and the same issues and the same problems that they got now. They had it all. He might have took the frying pan later if, if Ahasuerus had gone to see the queen. So, they're all worried about what the response is going to be. So in verse 19 they say, If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her a royal position to another who is better than she. So they tell the king, you just got to get rid of her. Now, getting rid of her didn't mean he actually got rid of her. So, in Middle Eastern culture, she wouldn't be the queen anymore, but she would always be in his harem. The king never took a possession of his, which would have been what Vashti was, or any of the other women we're going to read about in this story, and sent him back to life. They belonged to the king forever. But to be part of the king's harem was like to be condemned to a life that was no life. Never going to have children. Never going to have a family. It's you, you may be you're going to have stuff to eat and and nice clothes and pretty perfume. But I don't know that life doesn't sound like a good life to me. She's not going to be the queen, but she's not going to be anybody else's ever, either. Now. If we understand the king to be Xerxes, then the queen is a nestry. Uh, and maybe one of the reasons that she doesn't go before the king is because she's pregnant with a king who's going to be named Artaxerxes, who's going to let Nehemiah go back and fix the wall. So... She doesn't want to go. They put her out. She's not going to be the queen anymore. They lose her crown, but she's still going to be there in the palace. She's just not ever going to have relationship with the king again. It says, And when the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all the empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. Really? Is that how that works? Can you legislate morality? Can you legislate a change of heart? into somebody. If I make a law, does that make you able to obey it? No. But that's their premise. Is that any different than the premise we have today? Are we going to stop school shootings by making more laws? Look, the problem with school shootings is the same problem with everything else in our world today. The problem has a name nobody likes to say. It's called sin. And if you don't deal with sin, I don't care what laws you pass, they're not going to do it. It cannot change the inside of a man. An external command 
cannot change the inside of a man. But that's what these guys are trying to do. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. So all this is foreshadowing for God preparing to be able to save his people. So what you don't know right now is in a few short years, a man's going to come on the scene who wants to obliterate all the Jews. And God's going to put his champion in place. Oh, let me give you some information about his champion. His champion's not following God right now. Not worshiping God right now. Not probably walking in obedience to God right now. Her uncle that's taking care of her is keeping their their identity a secret so nobody knows they're a Jew. So I know they're not going to synagogue. I know they're not reading scriptures. I know they're not a part of any of the sacrificial system. They're just living life. They're just happen to be, they just happen to be God's choice for the thing that's about to take place. God has them in just the right place at just the right time. But you see, both of those people, they think, where's God? And they don't realize all this stuff that's happening in the, in the way over there in the palace, they don't even know about it. That that's God working out good in their life to save them. But they don't know it any more than we always know what God's doing. What is... Isaiah 55 tells us. It tells us that His ways and His thoughts are higher than our ways and our thoughts, right? As high as the heavens are above the earth. So we don't always have God totally figured out what He's doing in our lives. And even if you don't see Him, and even if you don't name Him, it doesn't mean that God's not working. And that's what Esther teaches us. God is working. Chapter 2, it says, see that little phrase, after these things? Well, the battle of Thermopylae has happened. The war in Greece began. The hornet's nest was stirred up. Xerxes came home a little bit with his tail between his legs because he doesn't have a victory. He went over there with some estimates, a two million man army, and is losing. He comes home. He's a little bummed. He's a little depressed. Look what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered... Vashti. What's he remembering? I think he's remembering regret. He's thinking, man, I was drunk and stupid and mad. and So, but I, before you start thinking Xerxes is a good guy, <laughs> man, we'll just keep reading. He remembered what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So the king's servants, they know that they don't want him feeling bad about Vashti. Why? If the king puts Vashti back in a queen, what's Vashti going to do to all those guys who said throw her out? Oh yeah, she's going to say, hey, off with their heads. And, and Xerxes is liable to do it just to make her happy. So they come to the king and they say to the king who attended him, they said, let beautiful virgins be sought for the king. Now your Bibles may say a a number of different things for the word virgin. Uh, In the Hebrew, this is the word betula. Betula doesn't necessarily mean a young woman. A betula basically is a woman who is able to give birth. Doesn't mean that this woman is not married. All it means is the dudes from the kingdom went through the kingdom and found every pretty woman who could give heir to the king and they took who they wanted in 127 provinces they took all they wanted the lowest number of the estimates is 400 women are gathered up to for the king to choose a new queen and some people teach that this is a beauty pageant so let me put a little pin in that idea if you're thought of a beauty pageant, is they're all going to walk in front of the king's going to go, no, 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 no. Oh, wow, she's so pretty. I pick her. That's not exactly how the judging was done. Every woman spent one night with the king. 
one who pleased the king the most became the queen. The one who didn't lived the rest of her life in a harem without love, without family, without further relationships because the king never turned nobody loose. So if that's what you call a beauty pageant, that's what it is. But it's a little more twisted to me. And I think when them women are picked, I think especially Esther, who we're going to meet shortly, is even more confirmed in the concept of where's God? What are my chances, one in 400, of being the, the woman the king chooses to be his queen? What are my chances that, that this is going to end up good? That I, think, I think she's feeling that way. But I just want you to see, as we continue to work our way through, you look for them fingerprints, the coincidences, the times where God puts just the right person in just the right place at just the right time so that He can save His people. Well, they're going to gather them up. 127 princes, uh, uh, provinces. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, and they will gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan. Remember Batula, that's just a young woman who can give birth. Uh, all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, and to the women's quarters, under the custody of Haggai. Haggai is the chief eunuch. The king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given to them. Now, I don't know for you fellows, I, I sometimes grow weary of the beauty preparations my wife makes before we go anywhere but after reading Esther my wife gets finished so much quicker than they do the beauty preparations are 12 months long crazy look what it says then let the young women who who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. Of course it pleased the king. He's a man, and men are pigs. And it pleased the king. It pleased the king. So in Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. Now whenever this is read in Purim, every time someone reads the word Mordecai, everybody's supposed to go, yay! Say his name 57 times. So it would become laborious for you guys to yell yay every time. But just thought I'd let you know. In Purim, when you celebrate the feast with your Jewish neighbors and friends, if they read Mordecai, you're supposed to go, yay, because he's the hero. Yeah, there you go. Mordecai's the hero. So there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of uh, Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now, he's from the same tribe as Saul. You with me? Remember Saul, the first king? Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah. That's the king through whom the curse came, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah. That is Esther. Hadassah means myrtle. She's named after a myrtle tree. They called her Esther in Persian, which means star. His uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as, a, as his own daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree was heard and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was, what's that word? Taken. I, I, just, I just don't see, as I work my way through the story, this, this uh, I don't know, deep romance. You can watch a movie later, and it'll probably look different to you, but I'm not sure that that's the way it was. She was taken into the king's palace, into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now the young women pleased him. The young woman pleased him. Who? Esther pleased Haggai. So the first thing we see, you remember when Joseph was put into uh, as a slave? You guys remember? He's working for Potiphar. And what happened? 
He found favor in Potiphar's eyes, right? And, and so God was with him in that place. So here Esther comes in, and, and you've got 400 women, and these are, not, these are 400 beautiful women from all over 127 provinces, and it just so happens that the chief eunuch looks at Esther and says, something about her. You really going to sell me that coincidence? And she just happens to be a Jew who just happens to be the one who just happens to save the nation? Really? But I promise you, she doesn't know that God's working. And sometimes we don't know either. We look around at our circumstances and we think we're forgotten or God doesn't see me or God doesn't hear my cries or God's not working on my behalf. But He's working here. He's working here. From chapter 1 to where we are in chapter 2, four years have gone. Four years. That's how quick it happens. And there's going to be four more years by the time we get to chapter 3. goes quick. But as we look what the scripture lays out for, she finds favor. And so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. So you see, he gives her favor. She gets more beauty treatments. Now don't get too carried away. It's, but it is like, a, ladies, this is a year spa day. That doesn't sound too bad, right? Literally, it's a year spa day. Look what it says. It says, then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. So she's got the most honorable place, the best people working on her, all of that stuff. But in verse 10 it says, Esther had not revealed her people, her family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Now doesn't that just sound like an uncle who's excited about your prospects in a beauty pageant? I don't think so. He's pacing outside thinking, oh, what's happening? What are they doing to Esther? What's, gonna, what's her future going to be? That's a worried uncle. That's how I see it anyway. He's out there pacing and, and wondering what's going on. Well, verse 12 says, Each young woman's turn came to go in to King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation." According to the regulations for the women, for thus were the days of their preparation apportioned. Six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Now the words used here, the verbs that are used, means that that was six months being polished and massaged with oil, perfume, aloes, I don't know, Kathy has described spa days to me. It just sounds like that to me. You get getting a rub down, getting beautified. Nothing, not much has changed in a couple thousand years. Six months of one, six months of the other, and then came your moment. The time when you would go before the king. Verse 13, thus prepared, each young woman went to the king. And she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. So they could take anything with them. Any kind of jewelry, any kind of whatever they wanted to wear, whatever they wanted to take with them to try to earn the king's favor. In the evening, she went. And in the morning, she returned. It's not just a line of pretty women standing in front of the king. In the evening she went in, in the morning she came home to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. So they go in for their night with the king. And if the king chose them, then they would be queen. If the king didn't, they became concubines for the rest of their life. So, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. 400 women. 
Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abigail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing. But what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised, and Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. She didn't take nothing with her. She didn't take no gimmicks, no tricks. That doesn't mean she wasn't made up or she wasn't made beautiful and all of that. But she, nothing extra. Haggai just said, yes, you, just like you are. She found favor everywhere she went. Doesn't that sound like Joseph? When he's in prison, what do he find? Favor in the prison. When he was a slave, what do he find? Favor. What was all of that? That's the fingerprints of God on Joseph's life. What is it in Esther's? The fingerprints of God. He's working. She's not praying. She's not asking. She's not reaching yet. But God is working. God is moving. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. So this is four years after we started in verse 1 of chapter 1. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. Doesn't that sound pretty? That's not really what it says. There's lots of words for love. This is not the word for love that you would say in terms of a husband and his wife. This particular word for love means that he desired her more than all the other women. He wanted to be with her. He was attracted to her. But he didn't love her. He was attracted to her more than all the other women. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. One in 400. God's person for the job. His champion. Not marked as a woman after God's own heart necessarily at this point. Just a woman who's a slave captive who gets taken into the king's harem and finds herself in a position of authority. But God knew her character before she knew her character. You know what I mean? God knows the character of people before we ever understand. There are times when I see God moving a family or doing something in someone's life and in my arrogance, I think God can't use that person that way. They're messed up. I'm not sure God knows what's going on in their heart and life. Only to sit back and watch God mold and make. Because he's the master potter. And he makes something out of everyone. For his goodwill. And his good pleasure. And he knows Esther's the right person. And he placed her in the right place. And she didn't have to do any of it. But I still think she's... Now maybe she's feeling a little better. Like she's thinking, oh cool, I just hit the lottery. I'm the queen. I was a slave a little while ago. Now I'm the queen. I get to live in a palace. I got people going to wave fans over my face. And... And, you know, throw, what do they feed them? Dates or, or, or grapes, you know, sit there and just drop grapes in her mouth. And, and there's going to be some of that. There's going to be some of that. But seldom is that God's purpose. Seldom. More often than not, there's something else. There's some other purpose. Some other thing. And it will require you to make a choice. What is my greatest treasure? The palace? The gold and the silver and the richest kingdom on earth? Or is there something greater? Some greater motivation that drives me? And that's something that's gonna, it's gonna, she's gonna be called to, uh, to understand. Look at verse 18. So the king makes a great feast. 
the Feast of Esther. For all his officials and servants, he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. So the king is stoked. Well, if you think the king's a good guy, don't read verse 19. When the virgins were gathered together a second time. What do you mean? He just picked a queen. But so? She's a queen. When he wants her, he'll call. If he wants to parade her in front of a bunch of drunk men, he'll call her. But there's nothing special. He's on round two of all the women that he had gathered from all different areas of his kingdom. But it tells us that Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now that means that Esther's uncle Mordecai, who raised Esther, when Esther became queen, she was able to have him elevated so that now he sits in a position of authority in the king's gate. Now he's not number two or number three, he's way down the chain, but he has a position of authority. She remembered how he took care of her and she taking care of him. Well, just random though, right? I mean, the things that we do for each other and the things that happen are just random. People just do what they do and this happens and that happens. But it doesn't really fit in any bigger scheme, does it? It's not part of a bigger plan? We look at the scripture, it says, Now Esther, in verse 20, had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai. As when she was brought up by him. She still listened to Mordecai. She's the queen. And he's not talking to her. Don't think that they're talking to each other. You could not talk to the queen. You could not talk to one of the women in the harem. You could talk to one of the eunuchs who could bring a message. You with me? That's the only way he could talk to her. But look at this. In those days, just so happens that she has Mordecai elevated and he takes a position at the gates. Just so happens that she becomes queen. Just so happens that all this happens about the time two eunuchs want to kill the king. 21. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands. That word, lay hands, means assassinate. So it's not like they just wanted to grab him or have a talk with him. They wanted to kill him. They want to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, Xerxes. Fourteen years later, assassins will succeed. And Xerxes will be assassinated. But this time it says, So the matter became known to Mordecai, who got word to Queen Esther. And Esther informed the king Look at this phrase, in Mordecai's name. That's an important phrase. What does that mean? In verse 23 it says, And when the inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on the gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles, of the presence of the king. So what happens is, she takes it to the king, which doesn't really mean it goes to the king, it means it goes to the king's advisors. The king's advisors find out that it's true, they hang the two bad guys, and then they write down in the book, that we hung these two assassins and Mordecai, the guy who was sitting in the gate, Mordecai is the one who caught him. But no parade, no reward. I'm sure there are times Mordecai is wondering, what's the point of doing right things here? I don't know if anybody's paying attention. Nobody really notices what's going on. But the fingerprints of God are all over it. In a few chapters, the king's going to have a night when he can't sleep. He's not really sure why he can't sleep. There's trouble in the kingdom. And he happens to read the book of the Chronicles of the King. And he's going to read a story about Mordecai. At just the right time, to do just the right thing, to change everything. God is placing everything. We can watch it from outside and we can see all the pieces put into place for God to do this incredible thing for His people. But they're not even going to pray or call on His name. And maybe they're not sure He's there anymore. Because the people who were pretty sure that God's there are back in Jerusalem building a temple. Right? They're back there with Ezra. They're back there doing their thing, man. These are the people who were left behind. So, 
I think Mordecai is thinking, well, I didn't really get much, but look at chapter 3. Chapter 3 says, well, what's that phrase again? After these things, that's a clue for us that what has happened. There's been a time lapse. We're going to catch up to that time lapse in verse 7. But it says here in verse 3, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. You have just officially been introduced to the bad guy in the story. So I want you to see the, the chronology. Mordecai saves the king, gets nothing. Haman, who wants to kill all the Jews, just became number two in the land. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like, I'm trying to follow the Lord and do the right thing and do the thing I'm supposed to do and I feel like nothing ever happens for me but these other guys who aren't doing anything for God and are doing all this stuff that they want to do and they keep getting all the gold, they keep getting all the breaks and I don't get nothing. That's just because you can't see the fingerprints of God. The story of Esther, you have a story of you. Yeah, there's a story of Jackie. And there are times in my life when I didn't think God was there or was moving or was doing anything. But now, all these years later, I can look back and say, yeah, His fingerprints were all over that time. He orchestrated events just like these in my life. And I'm not nothing special. He's orchestrated events just like these in your life. And He's not going to stop. He wants us, as we look at this, to realize, to recognize, to know, to see that God's hands are moving. But listen, Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. The Agagite? What in the world is an Agagite? Two possibilities. They, they came from a land called Agag, or he came from King Agag. You remember King Agag? Well, Saul was supposed to wipe out all the people. Remember Saul, Mordecai come from the same tribe? Supposed to wipe out all the people, but he kept one alive. What was the name, guy's name he kept alive? King Agag. Samuel the prophet comes and says, Saul, what are you doing? You're supposed to wipe out all these people, wipe out all the, their livestock, everything. God wanted it all gone. Well, that's just so mean and cruel and downright wrong for God to want that. What would have happened if Saul obeyed? Maybe there's no Haman. Haman's going to try to wipe out all of Israel. He is going to have a decree signed by the king that says every Jew is to be killed a year from now. If that happens, there's no Messiah. If there's no Messiah, there's no church. There's no Christ. There's no salvation. And you're all lost and so am I. So who do you think's behind Haman? The same guy that was behind King Agag all those years ago. Saul didn't kill him. He was around long enough to sire children. Because the Amalekites didn't cease to exist. And here comes one. Haman, the Agagite, who advanced him and set him on a seat above all the princes who were with him. So this makes this guy number two in all the land. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded. So the king said, hey everybody, this is Haman, he's number two, make sure you pay homage to him, everybody bow, do what they're supposed to do. But it says, Mordecai would not bow. Mordecai says, man, this is a, this is an Agagite. <laughs> this guy is an Amalekite. He's one of the enemies of God's people. He maybe starts to remember his history. For whatever reason, Mordecai decides, now's the time for me to let everybody know I'm a Jew. So he won't bow. Jews were famous for this. Who would the Jew bow to? There's only one God. And that's the only person I'm going to bow to. I'm not going to bow to nobody else. You guys remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Right? Bow down before the image of the king? No, we ain't bowing. They weren't disrespectful to the king, but they were not going to give to the king what only God deserved. So, so this is Mordecai. He decides, this is the day, man. So the king's servants who were, who were in the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? So it happened when they spoke to him daily that he would not listen to them. 
that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. So Mordecai won't bow. Haman, they go tell Haman, Haman, this dude won't bow to you, man. I don't know if you're aware, but every time you walk by and we all bow, this dude don't bow. They want to see if his word's going to stand. Is that going to be okay with you, Haman? <laughs> Is it okay with you if this guy... So Haman's kind of filled with pride and... and uh, it's going to be a, a big problem for Haman as he goes forward. So, it says, It happened that when they spoke to him daily, he would not listen to them. And they told it to Haman to see where their Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them, I am a Jew. What's going to happen? I am a Jew. So when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout all the kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year, so this is eight years from chapter one, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur. P-U-R. The feast is called Purim. It means the casting of the lots. They celebrate this because God saved His people providentially. God put all the pieces in the right place. So they cast the pure, that is the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month. And it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So they're in the first month. They roll the lots because he's got to decide when are we going to kill all the Jews. So they roll the lots and it comes up the 12th month. Just so happens, right? It just so happens that when they roll the dice to decide when they're going to kill all the Jews, it could have been right now. And there would have been no preparation. All the Jews would have been wiped out. But they cast lots. Now, they cast lots, but who chose what lot fell? Proverbs says, men cast lots, but God is the one that chooses. Twelve, almost a whole year away. Just so happens, right? Coincidence? Just coincidence that God had that lot fall, so they're going to wait twelve months before they try to kill all the Jews. Well, let's see what happens. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among all the people in the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. You remember who I told you this king's dad was? Darius, right? And once upon a time, Darius's leaders came to him and said, You know, you should make it so that no one can pray to any god but you. And what had his dad made that law? And who was praying? Who'd they catch? Daniel. They want to get rid of Daniel, right? You could put this phrase in this section of scripture right now. And there came a king who didn't remember Daniel. Remember the story of the children of Israel in Egypt? And there came a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Were the Jews causing trouble? No, they were living in peace. Were there good Jews helping the kings and being... Heroes even for those people? Absolutely there was. Absolutely there was. But, of course, if you want to kill them all, you're not going to start talking about those guys, right? So he says, these guys are bad guys, and therefore it's not fitting for the king to let them remain. So if it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they should be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasury. The annual king's treasury was 15,000 talents of silver. So Haman says, I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver. So he says, I'll pay two-thirds of what we get in a year. That's a pretty big boast. Where's he going to get that money? Where'd Hitler get his? When they would come to the pile of, of silver in some of those concentration camps, where'd that silver all come from? Came from their teeth. Or their rings, or their earrings, or or whatever they had that was silver. Where'd the gold come from? Same places. He took it all, 
took their life. Haman is no different. Hitler wasn't the first guy. This is Haman's plan. He says, man, I'm going to have all this silver. I'll pay the king. Make sure the king will go for this. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. What's it say? The enemy of the Jews. You remember when I said, every time I say Mordecai, everybody goes, yay! Well, when you do Purim, every time they read the name Haman, everybody goes, boo! (laughs) And they give all the kids rattles. And the point is, every time you're supposed to time it, so that before they can say the name, you start booing, so that nobody ever actually hears his name. You cover it up. And the kids would shake their rattles at the bad guy Haman is is being mentioned. He's the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you. Do with them as, you, as seems good to you. The king gives them the okay. Go ahead. Wipe them out. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and with a decree was was written, according to all that Haman commanded, the king's satraps and the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people in every province, according to its script, to every people in their language, in the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written, and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces. Remember how many provinces? 127 different provinces, right? To destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews. Young and old, little children and women in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder all their possessions. So the devil is going to try to wipe out the children of Israel while they're in captivity. And one little girl who doesn't have a mother or a father, who thinks everybody has forgotten her, is placed in the only position in the entire nation to stop it. Coincidence? Just so happens God wasn't paying attention and this just magically took place? Man, it says a copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province and published for all the people that they should be ready for that day. And the couriers went out Hastened by the king's command. And the, the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Shushan was perplexed. Man, I wish I could keep going because it's about to get good. They just condemned every man, woman, and child from an entire nation... And sat down to have a drink. Does that seem weird to you? Doesn't it still happen today? Right now, tonight, as we sit here studying the Word of God, aren't there people with guns walking through Iraq, killing people, putting them in mass graves? You know they're not shooting Muslims, right? You know? There's a whole nother people group they want to wipe out. So there's not any of them left. They did the same thing in Rwanda. In the Sudan. In areas all over the world all the time. You guys remember a country used to be called Yugoslavia? You know that don't exist anymore, right? Two groups of people, Bosnians and Serbs. You cannot legislate into the heart of man the desire not to kill man. You take away every gun. You make all the laws you want to make. Cain will still kill Abel. And he don't need a gun to do it. He just uses a rock. Because the heart of man is wicked, isn't it? The heart of man wants to destroy and kill this sin nature that was birthed. Sin wasn't birthed with Adam, was it? Sin came before Adam. The Bible says that Satan was perfect until what? 
iniquity was found in you. Sin. And then Satan spread it, right? To Adam and Eve. And they spread it to us. The problem with Xerxes and Haman and Mordecai and Esther and Vashti and all the other people that the Word of God talks about is the same problem we have today. Sin. But God so loved the world that He gave His only Son to take it all away. And as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become children of God to as many as believed in His name. Not Democrat or Republican, Libertarian or any other crazy group. It's Jesus Christ who saves. And that same Lord is working in Esther's life. She don't even know it. He's about to save these people in a crazy way and they don't even understand it. They don't even know it's going on. And I don't want you to leave tonight and think somehow God doesn't know what's happening in your world. God doesn't know what hurts your heart. And God doesn't know where you're suffering and what's hard in your life. Because just like He was there, He is the master potter. He is molding and making your life. He didn't forget you. And He has created you for such a time as this. For a purpose. For a plan. And I know that's true because of Esther and 65 other books like it that all tell me the same thing. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for the opportunity that we have, Lord Jesus, to study this book. God, what a blessing. And uh, Lord, I just pray, God, as we as we come to it and as we look at it, God, we just let your word speak. N- not what uh, people's opinions, just what your word says. We're just looking at what it says and what your word is telling us and the and the hurt and the pain that is in a world, God. And I'm reminded that this these people who are in this place, perhaps were gathered outside of Jerusalem at the destruction of Jerusalem when Jeconiah was was arrested, and perhaps Esther's just a a little girl, or maybe she's just an infant, or maybe her mother's just pregnant. And they come to that place, and they're stripped of everything that they own, and and God, they lose it all, and, and their houses are burning, and their families are divided. And Jeremiah the prophet walks up amongst the people, and he says, Thus saith the Lord, I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Thoughts of good and not evil. But it doesn't feel like it right now. It feels like my life is ruined and nothing's going to be okay ever again. And I'm a slave and I'm enchained. I know the thoughts I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. And even when the people in the land of Persia have forgotten the Lord, the Lord has not forgotten His people. And even when I, in despair, forget, my Lord has not forgotten me. For He said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you 
even unto the end of time itself. Man, God is here in your pain, in your sorrow, in your weakness. And just like he told Paul and Peter and John and so many others throughout time, it's in our weakness that we can see him strong. God, give us eyes to see your fingerprints around us. The doors you open. The doors you shut. Give us eyes to see that you are working in our midst. That we might always have a sacrifice of praise on our lips. That we would know the greatest treasure we can ever possess is not gold or silver or homes or stuff. The greatest treasure we can ever possess is to be your possession. You are the greatest treasure in all the world. You are the greatest desire to be desired, the greatest want to ever be wanted. And you are able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. So God, we come to you and we pray. You give us eyes to see that we recognize your fingerprints in our God story that we see that you have not forgotten and that you are working and that you are providing us with a future and a hope. And I pray, God, that we would be giving you praise and glory because you are our prize. And whatever we prize, we praise. Lord, be glorified in this place as we honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.